praise the Lord. If that's, uh, if that's not your anthem, then make it your prayer. Amen. Lord, lead us to the cross. I think every one of us can identify that a certain season in our life where that song is just a melodic, um, you know, just peace that we really enjoy. And other times it becomes a central message in our lives where we are begging and asking the Lord to lead us to his cross and to lead us to um, his heart. And so, um, you know, circumstantially we are often led there, but I believe that by way of just our devotion and discipline, we ought to regularly seek to go there on our own uh, before there is just a unique cloud of circumstances that would drag us to the cross. Amen. Let's uh, go before the Lord this morning and uh, ask for his help in the proper handling and hearing of his word, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we declare our dependency yet again. Our lives are marked by dependency. There is not a single category of our existence that uh, does not scream for the help of the divine and you in particular. Lord God, even if we find particular strength in an area, we believe ourselves to be smart, we believe ourselves to be strong. Your word has coached us and told us to not place any confidence in those things, oh God, that we still need you. And so this morning, Heavenly Father, um, despite how great a listeners we might be, as men would count listening, would you, Lord God, do something to our ears where we would hear you? We would hear, Lord God, from your spirit. We would hear your words, Lord God. We pray, oh God, that regardless of how well prepared any notes or bullets or points or passages that will appear on the screen, that, Lord God, that you would take completely over and that this would be your adventure, that you would glorify yourself, Lord God, in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as you already heard, we are uh, venturing into yet another installment in our series entitled The Great Escape, where we are walking through the book of Exodus. And specifically this morning, we have some heavy lifting to do as I'll be covering chapters 7 through 10. Somebody say, what? Yeah, that's right. We're going to be handling nine of the 10 plagues this morning, but I promise you it will not take us 43 minutes times nine. Uh, so I don't have a sermon prepared for each uh, of one of the plagues, but we are going to um, get in here this morning. And so uh, just to kick us off, I want to just kind of let you into the, the Dewberry world for just a moment and let you know some things that are happening in our household. And uh, so, as you know, we have a, uh, we've got two teenagers, one is 15 and one is 17, and our 17-year-old has been driving now uh, for uh, about a year, and so we just went through that process, and now our 15-year-old, uh, as of about two weeks ago, just completed the um, learner's permit uh, written exam and is now uh, prepping for kind of that road component. And one of the things that I've grown to enjoy about uh, teaching and watching my uh, teenagers learn how to drive is, is, is They've, they've upped the ante on the written portion of the exam, and they've also upped the ante since I learned how to drive, even on the, on the road portion. And, and what I'm growing to appreciate is, is that you can score a 100 on the written exam and still not know how to drive. You can actually do quite well on the road test and still not know how to drive. 
Uh, and what we're and what we're discovering, and what I what I've grown to really appreciate about this process is, you know, the, the written exam has road sign recognition, scenario understanding, certain aspects of law that they need to know, and it's it's a pretty good and comprehensive exam. But again, we all agree and say amen that that's not enough. That's not knowing how to drive. We can also agree that even if a person just gets behind the wheel arbitrarily without taking the the, the written test and just starts to manipulate a vehicle and, and becomes kind of a functional operator, that without any understanding of the laws and the various scenarios captured within the test, that they too, while they may know how to operate the vehicle, they don't necessarily know how to drive, right? So that's not just the standards of the DMV, that's also the standards of you and me, right? We want people to complete both of those. And so we understand that there is both a, 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 a factual component to driving and there's a functional component to driving. And we want both of those to be married together in the same person. Well, the reason that I share this today is because I believe this is going to help us to fully appreciate what God is doing through this administration of the nine plagues. You see, because through the nine plagues, we're going to see this larger narrative unfold where I believe God wants us to know him both through his word and through his ways. God wants us to know him through both his word and his ways because we recognize that word is not enough and ways alone are not enough. Now, this is not a stab at the sufficiency of scripture. This is not what we're saying. But when we talk about the knowing of the Lord, let me give you some of the risk points for a person that only wants to know him through his word and not through his ways. You see, if you study the word deeply, bathe in the best podcast, buy the books from the latest scholars, and you're just immersing yourself, reading and reading, and you've got whole bookshelves in your house that are dedicated to the greatest of reformed scholars, and you've just been immersing yourselves in the doctrines of grace, what you will end up being is not a better Christian, but you will end up being a functional religious fact checker. You will sit in the pews, and you will listen to message, and you will parse them, and you will go through to, to determine whether or not the speaker or the hearer or whoever is operating in theological precision. And while there is great room and need for theological precision, theological precision alone does not equal good believers or actually knowing the Lord. But then what is the risk point for a person who only wants to know the Lord through his ways but not through his word? Their risk point is this. They would regularly find themselves on a roller coaster of confidence and disappointment because when you do not take your daily experiences with God and anchor them in the word of God, you don't know what to expect from God. You are going after God according to your own expectations, your thoughts, which are not his thoughts, and you don't have anything theologically to serve as an anchor to put your experiences, be them joyful or disappointing, to put them in context. So growing believers who are really knowing the Lord and growing in the knowledge of him need a balance of both his word and his ways. I want you to hear in that statement, his word and his ways. If you are a note taker, if you are a scribbler on a tablet, if you are a writer in your Bible, no matter what you do, I want to ask you right now in your notebooks where it says, well, you've already written, God wants us to know him through his word and his ways, I want you to highlight, underline, circle, check mark, bold, capitalize the word and. The word and. Now, why is this important for us in understanding what God is doing through the plagues? As we watch these nine plagues unfold this morning, what we're going to see is the Lord revealing himself to Israel, to Moses, and to Egypt in a way that is both progressive, sequential, and contextual. Don't get lost. 
God is progressively revealing himself. He also sequentially reveals himself, and he contextually reveals himself. And he's doing all of that through the outworking of the plagues. Now, follow me very carefully. When we talk about the progressive revelation of God, what we're referring to is the fact that God starts from the general and then moves to the specific. He begins to invite us into more and more of himself, a deeper and a more, uh, um, and more content, maybe a more complex or a more comprehensive understanding of who he is. Well, sequentially, the Lord invites us to experience and know things in a certain order. But then also contextually, he invites us to understand him in specific circumstances. To go back to our learning to drive analogy, here's how it would work. If a person is learning to become a better driver from a progressive standpoint, progressively, we want them to just spend more time behind the wheel. But at the same time, sequentially, we want to introduce them in a certain order, certain scenarios that would benefit them as a driver. Can you imagine a brand new driver getting their driver's license and then going out tonight and having to drive like an 18-wheeler on snow in Thunder Bay, Canada? That would be crazy. So there's a certain sequence that things need to have place. So progressively learning, sequentially learning, but also contextually. And here's what we mean by contextually. There's certain scenarios like, man, how do you drive well when you're coming down I-20 and the sun is burning your eyeballs out because you're just driving right into it? Anybody had the experience here? Right. How do you drive when you're in dense, thick, thick traffic and someone cuts you off? How do you drive when you're in a two-wheel drive, front-wheel drive Corolla, like I said, on black ice versus when you got four-wheel drive on dirt? Right. These are different contexts, but all of them contribute to understanding or knowing how to drive. Well, guess what? God is kind and he is wonderful in the fact that throughout life, he progressively, sequentially, and contextually lets us in on who he is. He introduces our lives to a variety of different scenarios that would constantly increase our knowing of him. Constantly increase our knowing of him. And so that's what we're going to experience today in, to, um, in the word as we walk through these nine plagues. Now, as we talk about this, um, you and I are already kind of familiar with the, the progressive idea. Think about it if you were a Netflix watcher, right? You know that there are seasons one, two, three, four, and five, depending on whether your show has been canceled or not. And then inside of each one of the series, inside of each one of the seasons, there is what? There are a series of chronologically ordered, what, uh, um, uh, episodes. And you experience character development and thematic development as you go through the sequence and through the progress, right, of that show. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about a progressive and a sequential uh, understanding of who God is. Now, as we zoom out and kind of take a look at the plagues, here's what I want you to appreciate. Uh, look at if you could have here on your screen, there are seven distinct moments, seven distinct moments between chapter seven and chapter 10, where the Lord makes a series of phrases. If you can see them on the screen, they are these. In chapter seven, verse five, you see the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord through the administration of the plagues. This is the Lord talking. In uh, chapter seven, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, in chapter eight, verse 10, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Uh, verse eight, chapter uh, Chapter, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. Does the Lord believe that his people or either the Egyptians have a hearing problem? No. 
But if he believes that this level of redundance is necessary as he rolls out his plan progressively, we ought to believe that that level of redundance is also necessary in our lives to really know who the Lord is. Notice that in that progression, the Lord not only saying, you shall know that I am the Lord, but he usually adds a little comma. You shall know that I am the Lord God. You shall know that I am the Lord God in the midst of the earth. You shall know that I'm the, there's no one like me in all the earth. So as the Lord, even with us, not just Egypt, not just Israel, not just Moses, not just Pharaoh, even in our lives, the Lord is always moving the chains and adding a little bit more to the story that we might know him. The Lord wants to be known. The Lord wants to be known. And so how exactly do the plagues do this? Well, if you look at the outlay of the plagues, as I mentioned, they are progressive. Progressive revelation plays out in our lives because the Lord wants to move us, as the New Testament would call it, from milk to meat. I mean, we've all seen a baby, right? We've all been a baby. And there's a certain season where all you can handle is milk, right? And then there's an eventually you get some choppers on the front. Then you get some tearing teeth. And then you get some grinders. Well, the Lord wants us to mature. So he sequentially and progressively reveals himself because we need that level of maturity in order to fully appreciate him. So we become milk to meat Christians in his word, but also milk to meat in terms of our personal experience with him. Uh, this whole idea of progressive revelation is not unique to the plagues, nor is it unique to the Old Testament. It is also captured beautifully in the New Testament in this way in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because where is all this progress and sequence and context leading? It's leading here. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So he goes back, right? He is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, making purification for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice the progression that is mentioned, that God has always been having a conversation with humanity through a variety of different venues, but the exclamation point on the conversation came in the person of Christ, and then when he brings Christ into the equation, he says, listen, I'm talking to you from the time of creation all the way until we get to the ground crescendo of worship that will happen in the final kingdom where Jesus Christ and the Lamb are on the throne. I've always been taking you through this progression. And so in that progression, the Lord wants us to know the unique relationship between, even in the plagues, we'll see this, the unique relationship between the creature and the creator, between the crisis and our need for a Christ, between the, the great consummation of the kingdom and also this wonderful concert of worship that will take place. This has always been the game plan of God to introduce himself and to cause his people to know him progressively. Well, through the plagues, how exactly do we see this? There's a great question on the table. If you've watched the plagues play out, if you read ahead or if you just have a, 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 a surface knowledge of the plagues, you'll know that the plagues take aim at each one of the members of the Egyptian pantheon. A pantheon is just a panel of gods or a group of gods that are actively involved in the, uh, a part of the worship uh, within Egypt. So here's the question we need to answer. Why does God dismantle the domain of each god in the pantheon? I mean, the Lord is very methodical with each one of the plagues that he would dismantle the respective domains. Well, one reason is this. God wants us to know very clearly that he is not God over distinct categories, that he does not have limited jurisdiction, that he is a God over all things and that he is sovereign and that he is the Lord God, that he is Lord of lords and that he is king of kings and that he cannot be boxed in to some distinct area of rule, that he's ruling over all things. Sounds quite academic, doesn't it? But how many of 
of us will recognize that in our lives, we regularly have little stations and places where we have categorized God's rule and not let him into others. How many of us will admit that there are times on the job where you want him to be Lord over the job, particularly when you're interviewing for that next position and you know it's out of your reach? Or when you have an issue with someone in the office, you want him to be Lord of your company and Lord of your job. But as long as everything is going well and you're killing it and your name is rising in the ranks, you really don't need him to be Lord over your company. How many of us will admit that we put God in categories? This isn't just an Egyptian problem. This is a contemporary gospel hope American problem. That we put God into distinct categories where we feel like we have a crisis, but we keep him out of categories where we don't think we have active need. And God is constantly and progressively revealing himself to say, you need me in every category of life. And so he beautifully proves that in the way that he rolls out the plagues by dismantling each one of the gods in their pantheon. But there's something beautiful that emerges in the text. If you read through the plagues, you'll notice that the Lord starts with the Nile and then ends at least the ninth plague with the night sky. Why is that important? It's important for this regard. One of the gods in, in, uh, in Egypt uh, is responsible for the Nile. The Nile is considered, Osiris uh, considered the Nile to be his bloodstream. And the Nile was a place where Pharaoh would go out and look each day. The Nile, if you can imagine, is a major river, just kind of thinking very practically speaking. Many uh, civilizations and societies position themselves around what? Uh, flowing rivers, rich and fertile soils, uh, well positioned by way of the sun so that they can fully benefit from the natural renewable resources that are in that region. And so God goes in from the foundation of their society and says, whatever gods you have that are guarding the river, whatever gods you have that you think are providing guidance and life through the river, I got this. I'm going to cause the river to stink. Not only did the river stink, but the Bible says that when the Nile turned to blood, that also any water that they had put in buckets, like if they had a pool or a fountain, or if they had some ice water through one of those Brita filters in the refrigerator, when they opened it up, it stank. I mean, he says, I want you to know that you cannot satisfy yourself in any way without coming to the one true Lord God Almighty. And so he sequentially and systematically and progressively dismantles all of these. But why does he do it? He does it, number one, as an apologetic against Egypt, right? That's a defense of his own character and nature, but as an appeal to Israel. Understand that Israel has been under the thumb of Egypt and seen this pantheon of gods be worshiped and praised and see how the society is fully immersed in the worship of these gods. And so God, while systematically and progressively pulling down each one of these domains dedicated to an idol God, is making two statements at once. Egypt, you don't have a God that can compete with me. Israel, you don't have a God that you need other than me. The Bible puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 through 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. The Lord wants us to clearly know, as we commonly have heard the phrase, that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and the alpha and the omega. But I want to modify that statement just a little bit. He wants us to know that he is the beginning through the end. When you hear that phrase that he is the alpha and the omega, you think about the first letter in the, in the Greek alphabet and the last, that he is the A and the Z. But no, progressive revelation invites us to know that he is the A through the Z. You understand? The Lord isn't just providing a captive context in which we do life, but the Lord says, I will systematically dismantle anything in your life that you stand up before me. That is not me. 
And so this is a beautiful thing that the Lord would invite us into this great apologetic. And so now with new eyes, I see what it means for him to be both the beginning and the end because he starts at the very beginning of Egyptian society and goes all the way to the top as he works through each one of the gods, the gods over agriculture, the gods over cows, the gods over grain, the gods over air, the gods who are designed to, to protect uh, the inside of the house, protect the outside of the house, protect the perimeter. He goes through and he systematically shows how there is not a single god that you have that can hold a candle to me. He ain't just doing it in Egypt. He's also doing that in us. It's an apologetic against anything that would raise itself and exalt itself to the same status and category of God, but it is an appeal to us to also know him deeply in these ways. Here's another question. Why would God go through all of this of, of exacting all of these, these plagues, frogs, flies, lice, uh, you know, blood, uh, darkness, uh, a moraine on the animals, uh, a hail, locusts? Why? Why not just do some kind of Navy SEAL move, some kind of divine snatch and grab in the middle of the night, just cause the deep sleep to fall over, you know, everybody in the end. They just wake up and Israel's just gone. They on coach buses like 300 miles away. Why not? Why not do that? Why? But, but I, I, here's why God doesn't, do, doesn't sneak them out. Because he wants us to understand fully his character and his capabilities. Understand that they hit, if they had just snuck them out, it would have been a profound statement of God's power, but it wouldn't have been a profound and progressive introduction to his person. Remember in the early uh, uh, approaches of Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh when they asked that he would let God's people go? Do you remember what Pharaoh said? Man, I don't even know who the Lord is, let or not there be a Lord. And the Lord says, we're going to fill in the blanks for you today, buddy. We're going to let you know who I am and how I work. Well, guess what? That's not just Pharaoh's problem. Many of us come to know the Lord under a, 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 we have a point of entry. The circumstances under which we come to know the Lord are awesome and they are true and they are real. And in many cases, we will forever savor that as an anchor to our soul for how he saved us. But the Lord says that singular and particular moment of how I saved you then is not the only way that I want you to know me as a savior. Because I want to make sure that, 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 that once that one area that I, or that situation that I saved you from has been resolved, that, that you don't begin to adopt other gods. So the Lord sequentially and progressively works throughout our lives to show that he is Lord over everything. Every point, every phase of life, the Lord is, is inserting himself and reaching in and saying, I want you to know that I am the Lord. And so... If I could just kind of summarize it for you this way, I would say very clearly that the Lord wants us to know that we do not need anything other than him, nor should we fear or follow anyone other than him. Nice academic statement, right? Easy to see and read and understand on paper, but do you know how tough it is to practice that in real life? It's tough. It's tough to live a life of total and complete dependency. Number one, because we don't know what we don't know. We all have blind spots in our faith. We all have little pockets of self-dependency in places where we've not fully depended upon the Lord or reverenced him as such. And the Lord is lovingly and wonderfully committed to appealing to us in those areas to show us how we need to know him now and how we need to know him next. And he compounds all of that to how we knew him then. So the Lord is not erasing the chalkboard or the dry race board or whatever for how we knew him in the past, but he's constantly adding to it that we might know that he is the Lord God. 
there's a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 4 and uh, 5 that I love. That really, from a New Testament perspective, gives us some insight as to why the Lord sequentially and progressively dismantles the other gods in Egypt's life as well as in Israel's life and also seeks to do so in our life. For the weapons of our warfare are not, of, that they are not flesh, but they have divine power destroying strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Understand that while the things that war against our faith today may not be these very fixed and clear idols, they may be arguments and ideals and values that we've picked up from our country, from our culture, and from our family that do not comport with the will of God for our lives. And the Lord will pull down those arguments. He will pull down anything, any philosophy of life that we have that does not align with the truth of how he wants to be known as the only Savior and as the only Lord. So let's begin to look a little bit at the plagues. We have them here on the screen. You've got blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. I mean, God just went to town, right? progressively working through the pantheon, progressively bursting through every category where there was a current deity that they set up. But I want you to notice that they are grouped in threes because here's where we begin to appreciate not just the progression of the plagues, but we also begin to enjoy something about the sequence. You see, God didn't start with darkness because he had a, a, a point in mind. He didn't start with livestock because there's a point that he has in mind that he wants to, to drive home. So this is where the outcome of how God re reveals himself is just as important as the order in which he reveals himself. When we start talking about this, God reveals himself, I'll put it this way, God reveals himself sequentially to make a case against anything that we might look to for self-sufficiency. You see, the things that we look to for self-sufficiency in life, they don't all crop up at once. They come up at various seasons in our lives, and therefore it becomes a sequential move, right? I mean, uh, you know, when we, when, we were, when we were teenagers, if you came to know the Lord then, maybe the biggest issue on your plate was uh, uh, an identity crisis, finding out where you really belonged in the grand scheme of the social hierarchy of your high school or then later college. But then after you went to college and found your loved one and you got some credentials and all that kind of stuff behind your name, you begin to develop another level of prowess and dependency. And so each stage of life brings with it a new sense of self-deficiency. We realize that we're good at certain stuff. We realize that we got game in certain areas. We realize that our, that our, that our families are effectual and functional in certain categories of life. And I, and I want to really squeeze this kind of segment of the message, not only for the Gospel Hope family, but for if there's any unbelievers in the room, this section is specifically for you. And here's why. Because the number one reason that many of us uh, stiff arm or give the Heisman to the Lord in any conversations of religion and a need for Jesus is because we don't feel like our lives are in bad shape. From the outside looking in, many times as an unbeliever, it is believed that religion and relationship with Christ is just for folks who are having a bad day all the time and their life is just busted and broken down. But what the Lord does sequentially and beautifully in every life of any person that knows him is not bring about a bunch of bad days, but he begins to march through our lives and show us how the things that we believe that we have power, prowess, and strength in, they don't matter. They can't give us the kind of satisfaction that the human soul truly cries for, which is unbroken communion with the one true Lord God. 
Now look at how he did this through the administration of the plagues in Egypt. There's a series of verses that are going to come up on the screen, but follow me because we got to move. I won't rush it. We'll read it nice and slow. Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. Listen carefully to these words. This is, this, this is when the Lord administered the plague of lice. Here's what happened. Now remember this, follow me carefully. The plague of blood and frogs affected everybody, but then the game changed when we got the lice. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats or lice, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magicians of Pharaoh said, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, his word and his ways simultaneously working out together. Exodus chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Then they took soot from the kill and, and, and stood before Pharaoh and Moses, and they threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. And the boils became, uh, came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. It gets good right here. 9.18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very, uh, I will cause hail to fall, a very heavy hail to fall. And as such has never been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. 10.6-7. through 7. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have ever seen. For the day they came onto this earth until this day, and then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servants came to him and said, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I want you to notice the sequence. Through the administration of the plagues, at the end of each one of the sets of three, you see this unique thing where the Lord, first and foremost, overwhelms. He not, not only topples the gods, follow this. He's not just toppling the gods, but if you follow the text clearly, he also overwhelmed the magicians, the physicians, the historians, and the regular everyday citizens. Did you see that? Did you see that sequence? He, he starts from the top of society and he knocks down the gods. But within each one of the plagues administration, he then did something where even the magicians could not compete because the first two plagues, the magicians had a little bit of a response. But as he begins to overwhelm the magicians and then he overwhelms uh, Imhotep, which is the, the god of medicine, you don't have any way to, to cure or to heal yourselves even from the gnats or the boils that are breaking out in your town. But then he overwhelms even the historians. Now, historians are a crucial point to focus on within Egypt because they love their national prowess. And if you even read Egyptian history today, by their own annals, they hate to record national defeat. And so for God to say, I'm going to attack the history, I'm going to break down the historians, I'm going to create a conversation here that you won't be able to keep secret. So the magicians are overwhelmed, the physicians are overwhelmed, the historians are overwhelmed. And then finally, remember the citizens of Egypt came to Pharaoh and said, man, how long are you going to go to, uh, you know, fisticuffs with God and this Moses guy? Let these people go. So as you can see, even Pharaoh's own popularity rating in the polls is starting to plummet. But this is what God does. 
not only toppling the gods and showing that he's Lord over every category of our lives and that there's nothing outside of the context in which he rules, but he even drills down into our lives and says, whatever is your personal sense of strength, is it your magicians? Is it your own innate ability? Is it your physicians? Is it your sciences? Is it your historians? Is it your great national history, your family history, your personal history? Is it the citizen? Is it your popularity amongst those around you? What is it that you're leaning on to make yourself stand firm before me and not fall on your face before me? What is it? And then look at what happens in Exodus chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. It says, then Pharaoh hastily called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now there Therefore, forgive my sin and please only this once. I plead with your God, the only Lord God, to remove this death from me. What just happened there? He even overwhelmed Pharaoh's personal fortitude, his ability to stand firm. These are all categories where we bring a sense of self-sufficiency to the table. You see, God works in the life in such a way where he beautifully, sovereignly, and providentially wiggles in between everything that we thought could keep us. Family name, trust fund, education, looks, career, health, stamina. He has this beautiful way of just weaving in between all of that to bring us to a place where we not just relent, but that we would also repent. Come on, I thought y'all was with me. (laughs) But, but, but is that not a thing? I mean, we see this unique network of circumstances, this dark cloud uh, forming over our lives, or this unique bouquet of circumstances that we can't seem to break through, and, and we say, okay, God, I relent. But the Lord isn't just looking for people who would relent. He's looking for people who would repent. Because to relent just says, I give up and you got more strength than me. But to repent says, I have sinned and you are righteous. Lord, you've made a case against me and everything in my life that I would raise up against you, I repent. I don't just quit with all of my trying to outlive you and to outneed you. I come to you. This is the point of the Lord sequentially and the order in which things come into our lives. And so if you're here today and you're a person who's perhaps your life is, you know, experiencing a a, a few clouds on either side and you've just said, I need to pull up my bootstraps, God will steal your boots. Perhaps you figured you'd make a phone call to a a few friends who could loan you several dollars. Or maybe you figured you'd put your head down at your desk and just work harder. And the Lord will let the air out of whatever life raft we have built other than him. And it's not him being mean. It's him being sovereign, righteous, and holy. Because the Lord reveals himself sequentially to make a case, a case, right? That's a case. That's just judicial language. He, is, he says he will reach out with a strong hand and he will judge Egypt. He is making a case against anything that they would use for self-sufficiency. And this ain't just limited to Egypt. He will do it in the lives of also of his beloved He'll do it to draw us to his, to, to clear the room of all distraction, and allow us to see our deep need for him. And he'll do it to draw us back to him when we've lost sight of why he saved us. And so, here's what we have. The Lord reveals his righteousness as both an invite and an indictment in many cases, but an invite to repent and not just to relent. I want us to pay attention to that. There are many cases and ways in life 
where we'll just say, Lord, I give up. But that's not what he's looking for. To give up is just your response to his power. But to give in and to repent is a response to his person. Lord, I see you as what I need. And I recognize that the way I'm living and what I'm doing is against you and against you alone. And so, as we continue in our conversation around the plagues, I mentioned that the Lord not only reveals himself progressively, reveals himself sequentially, but I said he also reveals himself contextually. Now, why does he do this? The Lord reveals himself contextually so that his target audience knows his power relationally. Knows his power relationally. Now, let's kind of unpack that a little bit. How many of you on your jobs have a, you have a benefits package? You got a package. Anybody? Anybody here got a benefits package? Hey, man, we got some other folks we need to pray for. <laughs> no benefits package. What's going on here? Um, well, you got a benefits package, right? Any of you who don't have a benefits package, you know what one is, right? You know what a benefits package is? Let's just talk about it. It is your company, the organization to which you belong, leveraging, whether it be a, a $300 million company or a, a $30 billion organization. It is your organization leveraging all of what it is in a way that is uniquely contextualized for you. They go out and they negotiate and they bring to the table other people who could say, hey, we need insurance for our people. Right? We need we need car allowances for our people. We need uh, these other we need you know flexible savings for our people. And so so your organizations, the big massive organization, says, I am going to leverage our resources and power for great benefits for our individual people. That's a benefits package, right? In other words, the company's prowess, the company's power, the company's uh, capabilities are being contextualized for your benefit. Does that make sense? No, your benefits package is not worth $60 billion, but it took the weight of a $60 billion company to make it come into context. You have access to these benefits because they have leveraged their weight for you. So when we talk about the Lord revealing himself contextually, there are several moments in Scripture that I want you to appreciate, one of which is this. Exodus chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your, into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on, the, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, so God has just been beating up everybody and he says, now watch this. I'm going to contextualize my power for the benefit of my people. I'm going to let the plagues do what they do everywhere except where my people are. It's a benefits package. It's the almighty God leveraging his sovereignty and his holiness and his righteousness and his omnipotence on behalf of his distinct people, showcasing what sanctification looks like, what preservation looks like. That's what it means for, for God to reveal himself contextually. But it gets better. It gets better. You remember, as, if you read the story throughout the plagues, the Lord would also begin to separate as the plagues advance. He began to do things to the cattle and the livestock of the Egyptians that he did not do to those of the Israelites, contextualizing his power, allowing this great, massive, sovereign God to be seen within the context of a relationship with a distinct group of people. But he goes further. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, it says, for by now, 
I have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. He's talking to Pharaoh. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord then contextualizes his sovereignty. He says, I want you to know that through the sequence and through the progression, I could have just cleared the landscape. There could have been nothing out here but just corn and blood. But he says, no. I'm, I'm, I'm contextualizing my power in such a way because even the position that you have as Pharaoh, I put you there so that in the passing of time, I might prove something for myself and my people and the promise that I made 400 years ago through this. This is the sovereignty of your God being contextualized on your behalf. So, so the Lord wants us to see this. Now, now what was beautiful is that, that, that Goshen was this beautiful analogy of sanctification, a place where God's people would not be impacted. The livestock was this beautiful analogy of God's preservation because their livestock, their livestock weren't, weren't impacted uh, in anything else. But then there was a moment of grace. In, in chapter 9, verse 16, you may not have the benefit of this on the screen, or, or 17 and after, or it's actually, it's actually uh, chapter 9, verse 20. Something so awesome happened, and it was very subtle. The Lord, when he announced that there would be hail on the earth, he says, listen, and tell the Egyptians, if y'all want to run and take cover, go ahead and go on in the house and take your animals with you. That way they won't get killed. This beautiful act of mercy. That is, God doesn't owe anybody any equation anything, but then he begins to provide a little pocket, a little contextualization of his power so that even the people of Egypt could say, man, the Lord God is tough. He even extended us an olive branch so that we could get inside and have safe haven from his righteous indignation. That's mercy. But even looking at Pharaoh's life, this is a great example of grace. God is saying, hey, the position that you have, the great power and the prowess that you have, I actually gave it to you. You didn't work your way into this spot. It was me, buddy. And so, so this, is the, this is what I mean by the, the contextualization of God's power. But here it is, and I want you to notice and feel it definitely. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate contextualization of God's power. You see, at the cross of Christ, you've got the full complement of God's attributes, his righteousness, his wrath, his sovereignty, his eternality, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his holiness, his grace, his goodness, his love, his propensity to judge. Anything that you can label from any class or any text that you've ever read, the Lord concentrates every ounce of it into the gospel because hanging there on the cross is a simultaneous collision of God's righteousness, his holiness, and also his wrath poured out on not people but on his son. And anybody who would believe in him would be saved from his wrath. The gospel is the ultimate benefits package. It's the full reign and weight of heaven contextualized for those who would trust and so, the, 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 this, is what it, this is it. God's power and character are packaged for the benefits of those who will indeed believe. Man, I can't think of a better New Testament passage to portray this than this one right here. It will not appear on your screen. This was, a, this was an audible. Omaha, Omaha. <laughs> Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31 Man, let's drag the text here for a minute. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, starts from the top. 
does not live in temples made with men's hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one blood, every, a man, he made from, he made from, he made mankind from every nation uh, to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, contextualization. But for what reason? So that they would seek God and perhaps they would feel their way toward him. And yet he is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets had said, for we are indeed the offspring, his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine like being gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands that all people everywhere do what? Repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. The Lord goes from creation to the Christ to say, here is all my power, the eternal, the intelligent the unbounded, intimate, and omnipotent God who cannot be worshipped or helped with God's hands has made himself available in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate contextual revelation of God. And this is the same reality that the plagues desire to point to. You see, God doesn't care who's in the audience. He just wants us to know that I am the Lord God. As a matter of fact, you're so serious about it. When he rolled out the Ten Commandments, there was one in there that says, do not uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That wasn't about misspelling or mispronouncing. That was about living in a way that does not link itself to his historic reputation. Many of you thought you were clear on that commandment because you never used certain cuss words that included the Lord's name, but that ain't it. How are we living? Are we living in a way that matches that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is the God who brought his people out of Egypt, that he is the God who gave himself lovingly for us on the cross, that he is the God who looked down from heaven and realized that our circumstances were so dire that only he could bring the solution. And therefore, he said, I will both, what, lovingly and voluntarily send my son, and I will have him to die as a substitute for you, because this could be you and should be you, because you don't have any blood to satisfy satisfy my wrath, but Jesus does because his blood is clean and it is sinless, so it becomes a necessary sacrifice, but then that sacrifice won't end with him being in a tomb. He will be victoriously raised, with, and he will show himself to be mighty and strong over man's three greatest foes, sin, death, and the devil, and if they'll believe that package, they can be mine, and they can benefit. I don't get a lot of packages these days, but when I do, I get excited. Uh, FedEx will come and, and they'll, uh, especially when I get this kind, I, I, every once in a while I get a package that demands a uh, signature. And what I like about that package is that the courier and the sender, whoever it is, they refuse to just leave it on my porch and let me just do what I will with it. They demand a signature. They want somebody in person to acknowledge that they have indeed received this. And I love it when a sender does that because it reminds me of the gospel. Here it is, the Lord has delivered the gospel into our lives, this package, but you know what? It demands signature. You see, the gospel does not say just because it's sitting on the porch, or because it's sitting in your backyard. The gospel does not say because somebody left it in your vicinity. The gospel says when we consent, when we'll sign and say, I agree, I have received this, that's when we are saved. 
And so I pray that if you're here today and you believe that you are saved because you have been in the vicinity and the package has been dropped off in your life, but you haven't signed, you, my friend, are not saved until you sign, until you say, Lord, I agree that this came from you and that I have distinct responsibility to respond to you and I agree with what you did in Christ, then you are saved. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. We're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to give opportunity for response. But from a practical standpoint, this is what I'm asking. We've been reading the Bible together as a church family now for a few months or a couple of months. The Lord providentially and beautifully allowed the reading schedule to land right in Exodus, right around this season. Did he not? Um, that was not uh, the orchestration or the intelligence of myself or, or Pastor Ryan. It just kind of landed that way. And uh, what a beautiful thing. So you've been reading as a part of your spiritual disciplines. I want to up the ante a little bit. If you are not a journaler, I want to invite you to journal just for this week. I want you to try it. And if you are a journaler, I'd like for you to add just an additional entry. I'd like for you to write in your journal every day this week, Lord or God, you are the Lord over. And I want you to leave a blank. And I want you to write that in in the morning. And I want you to come home in the afternoon, and I want you to just fill in the blank with how the Lord showed up mightily in your life and showed himself Lord over that. Lord over disappointment. Lord over anxiety. Lord over a poor performance report on the job. Lord over an exam that you weren't ready for. Lord over a teacher who you historically can't understand. Lord over a spouse that you're having difficulty living with. Lord over a marriage that you wish you had. I want you to just fill in the blank every single day. Can you take time and look back at what the Lord is doing because he wants to be known and I guarantee you that there are ways every single day that he is putting an exclamation point on that paper and filling in the blank that I want you to know that I am the Lord God over anything that you've got going on in your life. Now you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, man, I tried that before and I, didn't, I couldn't come up with anything. Well, guess what? Maybe you start your day off with this. There is something that you wish the Lord was Lord over. And will you fill in the blank with that? And will you prayerfully walk and practice throughout your day declaring that he is God over that, that he is Lord over that? Every time it creeps up in your life and tries to occupy space that uniquely belongs to him, say, Jesus, you are Lord over that. You have a name that's above every name. You are Lord over that. Can we do that together? New journal entries for this week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you as the Lord God over everything, sovereign Lord God, without categorization. You're not Lord over some kind of district, but you're Lord over the creation, and we indeed are your creatures. We beg, O oh God, that if we're here today and in our hearts we're recognizing areas where you've not been fully Lord, and we want to deal with that, we need somebody to pray with us, that we, Lord God, would be humble enough to go and have somebody to lock arms with us and pray in this area. I pray, oh, holy God and Father, if there's someone here that does not know you and just the, the curiosity of who you are and how you can help in their unique place in life is starting to bubble up into a need to take action, I pray, oh God, that they would even go to those who are standing at the walls right now, our prayer team. And I pray, oh God, that for those of us who just want to know you more deeply, we just want to know you more deeply, Lord God, we want to declare we want to declare with full energy and not just enthusiasm, but full conviction that you are Lord over that, whatever that is. Oh, God, would you move on us? 
Would you move on us to see you in that way? Open our eyes to where you've been trying to get us to repent and not just relent. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.